Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we are uh, started, we started last week in our study uh, called In Christ, and we're going to look uh, at Ephesians, the first three chapters, uh, throughout most of the fall. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10. So uh, I grew up in a house that had a swimming pool. Uh, we weren't particularly wealthy. My dad was a cop, and my mom, uh, most of her life, worked for Southwestern Bell back when you had to actually put the plug in to connect the phones. That's like the, for all of you that are young and don't know what I'm talking about, uh, that was like a precursor to Wi-Fi, you know, how you can actually talk to people in other places. But anyway, uh, my dad uh, was a concrete contractor before he became a police officer, so he knew his way around concrete, so he built a pool in our backyard. So I grew up just loving to be in the pool. And when I was about three and a half, four years old, my older cousin, Joyce, came over to the house once a week for about four or five weeks, and she was tasked with teaching me how to swim. Uh, and she did. And so literally from the time I was about four years old, I was an avid swimmer. Now, not like technically, like in races, I just loved to be in the water. And maybe some of you had a similar experience. Maybe you grew up around water, you had some swimming lessons, and you just loved jumping in. The reason that you get swimming lessons, some people say the reason you make sure somebody knows how to swim is so they don't drown. Now, I don't disagree with that, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good answer at all. I think the reason you learn to swim is so you can go in the deep end and you can really have fun. And you can, you can have competitions with your friends on how long you can hold your breath underwater. And you can have races back and forth. And you, can, and you can steal your sister's Barbie dolls and you can take them to the deep end and pretend like they've fallen in and they can't get out. I don't know who would do that. I just heard that that would be something that maybe you do. And if your older brother holds your head under the water, you're, you're good enough. You can swim fast enough. You can get away from him. It's so that you can, you can really enjoy what it means to be in the water. We're going to go to the deep end of the pool this morning. There probably isn't another passage in Scripture that is more complex and more rich and more mysterious than the verses we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, so much so that there's actually, uh, if you're on our email list, you've got an invitation to come back tonight at 6.30 and to talk more about this because there's no way in the sermon time that we have this morning that we're going to be able to tackle this topic. But I want to introduce you maybe for the first time or reintroduce or reacquaint you with the glorious sovereignty of God's plan of salvation. So let's jump in to the deep end of the pool and splash around and see what God may have for us this morning. And if you feel a little bit insecure, just kind of in your mind spiritually put on your swimmies and it'll be okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, that being in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, every Sunday we uh, come and we uh, acknowledge before you that uh, we are finite, uh, that your spirit and your word need to invade our minds and our hearts, that if we're, if we're truly going to worship you intellectually, it will be because you empower us to do so. And this morning, Lord, as much or more of any other morning, uh, that is very true. Uh, we come to the, to the deep end of the theological pool. We come to the mystery of your foreknowledge and your predetermination to redeem people who are unholy and sinful and broken. And it is beyond us. Father, you don't tell us everything about salvation, but that which you have shown us, you call us to believe. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would teach us, that our hearts and our minds would be open to your word, that you would keep me from making uh, terrible mistakes with a, with a difficult passage, and that you would unite our hearts in Christ. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us. Forgive my sin. I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we uh, see in this particular passage of Scripture is Paul talking about salvation in terms of the past and in terms of the present and in terms of the future. And so that's how we want to look at this passage. So our sermon and sentence is simply this. The past, present, and future of God's love for those in Christ Jesus is profound and immovable. It, it's not going to change. Leading us, if we're Jesus' disciples, to humility and to worship. And I want you to catch the last couple words in that phrase. The church of Jesus Christ needs humility. We get too full of ourselves sometimes. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We wrestle from time to time, if not on an ongoing basis, with self-righteousness, with thinking that we are better than other people. We're thinking that we know more than other people. And this passage, if we look at it honestly, will drive us to our knees in a good way which ultimately that's the best place to be when you want to worship God, when you want to acknowledge that he is glorious and he is majestic, and hopefully he will show us that this morning. Four observations about this text. The first one is this. God is the origin of salvation. Now, that might seem a little bit, uh, you know, oversimplified, but we need to understand where we begin here. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul is talking about the fact that we are in Christ Jesus, but that that salvation, that standing in which we find ourselves was actually originated with God the Father, that it was his intention all along to bring this to pass. It's from the Father. It's for the express purpose of of mercy, of grace. So the reason Jesus came in the first place is because that was the will of the Father. And Jesus says so in his earthly ministry. In John chapter 6 and John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, those are three uh, chapters you can read in the Gospel of John that speak to this topic. I'm just going to give you a couple of verses in John chapter 6. And I used these a couple of weeks ago in a different sermon, but Jesus is talking about why he's here in the first place. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the intention, the plan of him who sent me. 
Well, what is that plan? What is the will of the one who sent Jesus? This is the will that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Jesus is very clear that God is the origin of our salvation. We are given every spiritual blessing because that's the Father's intention. Why is this important? Because every so often, we start with ourselves. Every so often, we, we, we mistakenly, or may, it's not mistakenly, but we don't say enough. Every once in a while, we'll say something like, I put my faith in Jesus, as if I were the initiator of my salvation. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, there came a moment where you said, I'm putting my faith in in Christ, where you cognitively decided and emotionally and spiritually decided to do that. But this passage says that we were not the first cause of our salvation. We were the second cause. We were the responder. God intended all along to reveal himself to us. That's why Paul doesn't start out by saying, blessed be the church in Ephesus and give God a pat on the back for doing the right thing. It's not a man-centered faith. Our faith is centered on God. And we need to make sure that that order is correct. And so Paul reminds us that every spiritual blessing, that everything that we have in Christ is, is the Father's expressed purpose. And notice Paul's response. What does he say? Blessings be to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing every once in a while, right? The notion here is that God, God see, or Paul sees this. He, he gets a picture of what's going on, and he wants to praise and worship God. How many people got a chance to go to at least one round of the PGA Championship a couple weeks ago, if not a whole bunch more than that? So what, what was going on on Sunday at the PGA Championship? Something came back to golf that, that hasn't been around very much for the last few years. It was the Tiger Roar. That's exactly right. Tiger Woods was on fire. And that was the reason why I didn't want to go to Bell Reef. I wanted to sit on my couch and be undisturbed for four hours and just take it all in. But there was the tiger roar was going on in my living room by myself, to which my wife would just walk by and shake her head and just keep on moving. But when Tiger did something amazing that, that few golfers could do, he can turn it on like very few golfers have ever been able to do. People go crazy. They jump up and they cheer and they shout. And if you're on hole 12 on one side of the golf course and he's on hole three on the other side of the golf course, you can hear it all the way over there and you know what happened. You know Tiger did something. Does the world hear our roar? Does the world hear our praise? Does the world understand that God alone is to be glorified because we truly completely and with all of our hearts and minds and souls give praise to him because we know he is the origin of our salvation. Let's not skip over that too quickly. Secondly, not only is God the origin of our salvation, but he is the author of salvation past. In verse 4, Paul says this, we've been given all these blessings in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The word there chose, Paul picks very carefully, and he puts it in a particular tense, and and we need to understand the the notion behind this. What Paul, the way Paul writes this is, what he says is that God made a decision, and he acted on it, and, and, and the ramifications from that decision are ongoing. So God chose, and it'll never change. It'll just keep right. His choosing will keep consistent for all of time. So in a simple example, we have the Constitution of the United States. It was written 200-something years ago, and 
Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, those guys aren't walking around anymore, but we have their words, we have their message, and what they wrote in the Constitution is binding today. They did it then, but it's an ongoing effect. That's the word that Paul used here. He said, God chose and he continues to act on that choice. He made a choice outside of our understanding of time and space before the foundation of the world. These are deep waters. One theologian said it this way, in these verses, we are face to face with something in the very heart and mind of God. God chose, we sang this morning, God God chose me in the womb, and and that's true, but it's incomplete. Yes, that's true, because it's not outside of of this time frame, but but it doesn't say everything there is to be said about God's choosing. God is not bound by time and space, and he has known for eternity that he was going to bring about salvation. So, while that is okay, we, we hear that, and that, that begins to raise some questions, but, but I'm, I'm hanging in there with you. But now my question, I think, most people's question becomes, well, how did he choose? Right? What was the criteria? So did he look down and go, well, that person's really, 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 really bad, and now I'm not going to waste my time on them. But oh, oh, those people at Green Tree, they're so sweet and so nice and loving, and, and they actually pretend like they're paying attention to the pastor on Sunday mornings, and, and I know Tom's going to put in a good word for him. So I'm going to pick those guys. They, they're special. Is that how God chose? He looked in the future and saw what we would do, and he responded to it. That's one way people seem to interpret this passage, that God knew who would choose him, therefore he beat him to the punch and he chose them. And they go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and they read these words, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And they point to that order and say, see, he knew. He knew what we were going to do, and therefore he, he, just, he just acted upon it. Well, if that's the case, then chapter 1, verse 3 is written incorrectly. It shouldn't say, blessed be God. It should say, blessed be Tom, because he had the sense to pick God. The only problem with that, there are a lot of problems with that, but the only problem with that is it puts us in what I call an exegetical pickle. Exegesis is simply the study of Scripture, and there's a right way to study Scripture, and there's a wrong way to study Scripture. There are lots of wrong ways, but the right way to study Scripture is to get back to the original languages and look at what they say and look at what they intend and apply them accordingly. And in this passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul doesn't use the word foreknew as God foreknew my choice, therefore he confirmed it, but rather that word means he knew in his mind about me. He knew in his mind his attitude towards me. It's very different than me being at the center of my salvation. It puts God squarely as the author of the mercy and the grace in which I stand today by no ability or no reasoning or no merit of my own. I remember the first day I saw Cindy Ricks. I, I met her when she was Cindy Schmidt. And we argue about this a little bit, even though I say I remember the day. I say we were 16. She says that we were 15. But be that as it may, we were high school sweethearts. And I remember the first day I saw her, I was thunderstruck. I was blown away. We don't use the word thunderstruck enough. I mean, you should use that. If you're a teacher, start using that in your classroom, would you? Let's bring thunderstruck back. It's such a, I, I just stood, I, eh, eh, wow. I mean, I, I couldn't find words. And in, in my mind, I knew my attitude towards her. 
<laughs> and, and it hadn't changed, you know, all, all these years. I didn't act on it quite at that moment. There was still some courtship to happen and some convincing. Uh, she had to convince me that she really wasn't one. No, that was the other way around. I had to kind of convince her uh, and, and courting and me doing a couple of dumb things. And eventually, we, you know, we got to a really good place. But I knew in my mind. Now, that's a goofy example because my mind and God's minds are infinity apart. But, but there's an, an attitude on the part of God. And that's what that word for new means. And, and, and it, it means that, that he determined to be merciful. If it means that he knew my choice ahead of time, then chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians is also an error. As for you, you were dead in your trans- trespasses and sins. If I'm dead spiritually in my trespasses, how on earth could I do anything to change that condition? Not only that, but all of the Bible's teaching is that we are in a, in a condition of spiritual brokenness. You ever, you ever said to somebody, I feel so sick, I'm in no condition to, to, to be able to go to work today. I'm no condition to be able to, to go to school today. We're in no condition to choose God for ourselves apart from his grace and his eternal choice. And so what we understand this verse in all of scripture to mean is that God determined to be merciful, that God decided to redeem that God decided to make some number of unholy and guilty people holy and blameless. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way in his comment about this verse. God has chosen those who are in Christ in spite of what they were, not because of any merit that he has foreseen in them, but because he was moved solely by his own mercy and compassion. Now, we read that and we look at that, and, we, and, and that begins to raise questions in our mind. Why some and not others? Is this fatalistic? If it's all a done deal, I don't need to talk to any of my friends about Jesus because I, I can't have any power over that at all. And, and isn't God unfair? And, and how on earth could he, could he pick some over others? Are you saying that some people never had a chance? Well, those are all questions that we're not going to answer this morning. <laughs> but we are going to have a time tonight at 630 if you want to come back. Because I literally, it would take me an hour and a half to even begin to unpack the outer edges of that. So tonight at 6.30, if you want to come hang out with us in the hearth room, bring your questions, bring your comments, and we're going to talk about that. But let me say this. What kind of is behind all that is our notion that perhaps God is unfair. Perhaps God is not dealing justly with everyone in the world. Uh, I coached hockey for a lot of years, and I loved coaching hockey. The worst part about the hockey season was tryouts. Because you would, you would have all these, these players, you have 100 players, streamer, you, you know, 100, 120 players on the ice. And the coach's intention from day one, the director of coaching and all the head coaches have one plan and one plan in mind only, to make sure every child gets on a team where they're going to have the most fun and, and just have a great time. So we want to make sure that the kids that are just kind of getting started, that they're together in a group. And the kids that have been playing a little while and they're a little bit faster, we don't want them to not like hockey because they're skating circles around them. So you try to get them in the right group. But there's always a a bunch of parents who have their noses pressed against the glass watching their future NHL or skating around the ice, right? And, and God forbid you don't get their child on the right team. <laughs> you will hear from them because clearly though they've never put on a pair of skates and they don't even know that there's an E in the word hockey, they know more than you do about where their child should be playing, right? And we're all guilty of that on some respect. But the notion there is, wait, is it fair? 
Is the deck stacked against us in some way and it, and, it, and it offends our sense of justice? If we are tempted to begin to think that way, I'm not saying that we shouldn't wrestle with the questions, but let's make sure we understand that we wrestle with the questions in the right tone and in the right frame of mind. For example, if I assume that I understand these words to their fullest measure, it means that I assume that I am equal to God in wisdom and knowledge. It means that all y'all ought to bow down and worship me and not worry about God anymore. That's a very big assumption, brothers and sisters. But if I say, God's unfair here, other than, Lord, I don't understand it, and it feels like there's some unfairness in it, right? Those are two different tones in which we ask the question. I'm assuming something that is absolutely absurd. I'm also assuming that my motives are pure. I'm assuming that I'm actually worried about you and not myself, which rarely is the case. Normally, my heart in some way has been broken by sin, and my, my desires and my questions tend to be more selfish if I admit that freely. It also assumes that not knowing means that God's wrong. If I don't know and if God hasn't explained it to me, then God is wrong. And this ignores what Scripture says. Paul doesn't lay out a lengthy explanation here. He states the fact of the person of God, and he calls us to believe, and he calls us to trust. Now, again, come back at 6.30. It doesn't mean we can't discuss, and it doesn't mean we can't talk. But brothers and sisters, look at Paul's response to this, because Paul doesn't understand it any more than you and I are going to understand it until we get to heaven. But look at what Paul, how Paul responds in, verses, in verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. In love, he reminds us that this is all motivated by God's compassion. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To what? To the praise of his glorious grace. I think as the, as the Spirit of God was revealing to this, I think one primary thought was going through the Apostle Paul's mind. How on earth could God save a guy like me? I was a guy that was trying to destroy the church. I was a guy that hated Jesus and hated Christians. And now I'm a disciple. Now I'm a follower. How can this possibly be? Has, it ever, has this thought ever crossed your mind? I, it crosses my mind every once in a while when I'm in church. Why am I here and somebody else isn't? From a human perspective, there are a lot better people in the world than Tom Ricks. There, from, from just from, you know, let's compare apples to apples. There are a lot of people walking around this planet who, if, if somebody deserved God's grace, would be way ahead of me in the process. What am I doing here? Why is it that when I pick up the Bible and I read it, it sings to me? Why is it that when I bow my head in prayer, I can actually get lost in the glory and the beauty of God? Why is it that I'm so convicted about my sin and my brokenness because I'm smarter than I'm better? No, it's because God in his grace and his mercy for some reason looked at me and said, that's my guy. I don't deserve it. There are a lot of questions about it. But my response needs to be the response of the Apostle Paul. Praise and worship and humility. And if you want more on that, come back tonight. <laughs> God is the origin of salvation, the salvation past. But God also speaks of salvation present. Because we live in this world, right? There's a lot of stuff with which we're challenged. And there's three things that Paul mentions about our salvation present. First in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes, will we belong? We belong. God doesn't just save us reluctantly. God just say, well, I guess I got to send Jesus, but I don't really like you guys. He says, you know what? I'm sending my son, and, he, and he's going to redeem you so that you have a place to eternally 
belong. When you walk in here on Sunday mornings, or I walk in on Sunday mornings, or Friday night, Cindy and I went to a, a charity event, and there, I don't know, there are a couple hundred people or so, 300 people there, and you walk in and you start looking around the room, and what are you looking for? Most of us, some people go in and like, I'm going to meet 20 people tonight. This is going to be so much fun. Most of us walk in and go, who do I know? <laughs> Where's where there a corner that I can stand in the room and, and, and somebody knows me? There's a sense of, of wanting to belong. And what Paul says here is that God wants to scream and shout at the top of his lungs through Christ. In Christ, you belong to me and everything that goes along with that. Paul also wants us to know in our salvation present, not only uh, this theology of adoption, but also look at verse 7. In him, we have two things. In Jesus, we have redemption. The notion there is is like uh, uh, paying uh, for a, a, a ransom. Uh, that, that, you know, someone's uh, broken the relationship and, and, and need to get them back. And what do you do? You, you pay for that person to be restored. That's the notion of redemption. And, and, and the purchase price was what? The blood of Jesus Christ. We have redemption. God's, God's bought us for himself, but also forgiveness. And the notion there is that you have a debt that is owed, right? I have a debt to God. Every sin that I've ever committed, I have a debt to God. When somebody gets out of prison, what do you say? They paid their debt to society, we don't have a debt to society. In some ways we do. But, but fundamentally, we have a debt to God for all the evil things that we've thought and spoken and done. And most of those sins actually end up hurting other people. So I owe a debt to God. I deserve God's wrath because of things that I've done to you or said about you or attitudes I've had towards you or family members or, or complete strangers, whatever the case may be. And that debt has been paid by Christ. In other words, we're free. Have you ever had a real big debt over your head and you, and you made the last payment? Remember how good it felt? You're like, I'm out from under. I'm free. I just happened to be watching yesterday. Uh, Cindy and I went out with some folks and I was uh, ready and was waiting. I had a few minutes to kill while she was getting ready. And so I turned on uh, the History Channel or, or one of them. But anyway, there was a, a, a show about the Iran hostage crisis way back in the late 70s, early 80s. And the, I, I just caught the last few minutes and they, had, they were getting off the plane. The hostages have been freed and they're getting off the plane in uh, Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany. And as, as, as these folks get off the plane, they are swamped by media and the people coming and asking questions and putting microphones in their face. And one guy's getting off the plane and this, and this reporter walks up to him and, and says, how do you feel? Right. Now, I'm sorry, and, I, and the people that work for news in our congregation are phenomenal people, and, and, and you guys are better than everybody else, and, and I, I can't say what channel I watch, but I, I'm for my friends, okay? I got to tell you, that was a dumb question. <laughs> How do I feel? And literally, this man stopped, and he looked at it, and he had this incredulous look on his face, and he said, well, I tell you what, I feel better than I felt for the last 444 days, <laughs> right? That's a pretty good answer. When you're set free, it changes everything. And, and, and that's, that's why I think this guy was so incredible. Like, you can't even begin to imagine how I feel. I can't even begin to put into words how I feel. We should spend our lives out in this community, outside of these four walls in Kirkwood and St. Louis and beyond, telling people how good we feel because God has set us free. But also, not only do we belong now and we're free, but verses 8 and 9 talk about uh, a lot of gifts that are given to us, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We have wisdom, we have insight, 
We have a knowledge, the gospel applied to our lives. We begin to gain understanding. We begin to, to be able to look at our lives and go, okay, I, I don't understand all of it, but in the context of the gospel, I have a, I have a strong foundation. I, I have a clearer understanding of God's working in my life. In other words, this salvation present is a salvation that is spiritual, but it is also emotional. It's a salvation that is intellectual. It is a salvation that is social. We have, a, we have a place to belong. We have a family to which we belong. And I would argue that verses 5 through 9 of this passage give us great hope in the here and now. Because it ain't going to get any easier, brothers and sisters, till we get home. It's going to continue to be a struggle and a journey. There's going to be terrible moments. There are going to be glorious moments. There are going to be moments that test our faith beyond sometimes what we think we're able to endure. How do we know that? Because a lot of us have, have lived long enough to know that those things are true. And the glory in the midst of the suffering is only there because God has a plan of salvation. But he gives it to, gives us, it to us with joy and with passion that we could enjoy a salvation present. But as the great infomercial says, well, that ain't it. But wait. There's more. You know, 1999, and you can have half the world for 1999. But we need to look at salvation future as well as a plan. So all this comes together for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This notion of our salvation that's to come, it's complete. And we're going to see next week, we're going to look at the next few verses and we're going to study the Holy Spirit and how Paul says he's a guarantee of our inheritance that's coming. But we know that there's something more and more glorious coming and it's found in the word unity. God is going to unite all things in him. What does that mean? Well, I think it means, first of all, that we're going to be united with God, that we're actually going to understand more than we understand. I I want you to come back tonight at 630 with your questions and your comments. I really do. I I hope we have to move out of the hearth room and move in here. We have a bunch of us. We have a great conversation. But I will tell you right up front, when you leave here tonight, you're not going to understand completely the the, the theology of predestination and foreknowledge. I, I can take you only so far because Scripture only takes us so far and it stops. But there's coming a day when you will understand it completely and you will with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all the energy that you can possibly muster, you will worship God for it. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 13. What's 1 Corinthians 13? What do we call that? The love passage, right? There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that we skip over that we, that we ought not. It comes towards the end of the chapter and it says this. Paul says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. So he's like, I've, I've got this window I'm looking through, but it's kind of like y'all that are sitting outside, you know, you, it's hard to see me. So you got to watch the TV out there. It's kind of like a mirror dimly. You know, some people are in there, but you're not quite sure what they're doing. You can't quite see. It's, it's a little foggy, right? But then what? I'll see face to face. I'll be able to see just clearly as I'm looking at Anthony Luster right this minute. I will see God face to face. Not only that, Paul admits, I know in part. Paul says, I don't know everything. In fact, I only know a little portion of of, of what I can know about God, right? But then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You got to understand this, friends. What does God know about you? What does God know about me? Everything. What are you going to know about God when you get to heaven? Everything. He's going to show you everything. He's going to say, you know how Rick's kind of screwed up that whole thing on predestination on the 26th of August back in 2018? He goes, 
come on, let, let me show you what it really means. And you're going to hear it, and you're going to get it, and you're going to worship. And I'm going to hear it, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to feel real bad about this sermon, but, I'm gonna, but then I'm going to be excited for all of eternity. And I'm going to go find Paul, and I'm going to punch him right in the nose and say, why didn't you explain it better to me, right? We're going to be unified with God. But unity with God always leads to what? Unity with our fellow man. Oh, my goodness, how much hatred is there in the world? How much violence and bigotry and cruelty? All of that will be erased in an instant. I was at Cadoba on Saturday, yesterday, getting some lunch. I was toiling through, uh, wrapping up my sermon preparation, and the guy serving me lunch had a tattoo on his arm. I said to him, hey, would you mind if your arm was in a sermon tomorrow? <laughs> and the tattoo said, trust no one. This is the guy making my lunch. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not connecting the dots here. And they're like, okay, if I turn away, is he going to like spit my food? Is he, what's he, what? Because <laughs> I can't trust them. I can't trust anybody. But that's how we go through life. I mean, my parents taught me from the earliest age, you moms and dads are doing out with your little ones. Be so careful who you trust. Why? Because there are people in the world that will do great harm. But not when we get to heaven. God will change all of that. We'll have relationships that are genuine and true and glorious. But not only that, this is a bit of a side note, but notice that it's everything in heaven and in earth, all of creation is going to, to be united with God, and it's going to be a glorious thing. So that is a picture of, of a place in the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River called um, uh, Lava Falls. And Cindy and I were invited by some friends to join them on a six-day rafting trip through the Grand Canyon this summer. We went 188 miles, and we went through Lava Falls. And that's one way to do it. You can do it that way, upside down, out of your boat, and grasping for air. Uh, because Quite frankly, Lava Falls could care less whether it kills you or it doesn't kill you. Lava Falls is Lava Falls without any apology. And one adventurer put it this way when he was thinking about kind of our relationship with the created order, talking about Mother Earth. She knows nothing of forgiveness or mercy. She gives no second chances and abides no fools. She is, a harsh and un she is harsh and unrelenting, following her own rules, ignoring yours. If you are not diligent, she will starve you, drown you, freeze you, crush you, and burn you, or eventually she will simply outlast you. A lot of people have reached out to us this week and said, how are Richard and Katie and the grandkids and their family out in Oahu? And the reason they've done that is because they know the same as me, that a hurricane has no emotion about who it kills or who it doesn't kill. That's the brokenness of this world. And if you're not careful, it'll kill you. But not in the new heavens, not in the new earth. You can go through Lava Falls as many times as you want, and you're always going to come out on the other side. How do I know that? Because John says it's true in Revelation. So if we go to those, those verses in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we go to that, thank you very much. Then I saw new heaven and a new earth and a river of life flowing from God's throne and the tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. This unifying work of God's plan of salvation is whole and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, these are deep waters. These are challenging truths with which we must wrestle, wrestle and grasp by faith and believe because God has told us. It is that we are in Christ by God's eternal design. 
before the foundation of the world. It is also through his endless grace that in our present salvation, we have a sure and certain hope of that which is to come. To him alone be glory and praise. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless your name even as we seek to grasp the depth of your word. And Father, in in these moments, we pray that you would teach us all that we can know and bear in this lifetime. Father, let us not be negligent or superficial in our faith. Help us to be good students of your word. But Father, also help us to know that there are certain things that you have revealed and others you have not. And that we can always rest in your goodness and in your grace and in your mercy. So Lord, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and to our minds. And we pray that the end result would be humility and would be a passion to worship and bring glory to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.